Well, I'm, uh, I'm excited. You've heard uh, the name Ron Frost, Dr. Ron Frost, a lot recently. Uh, if you're with us at uh, the beginning of the year, he, he uh, spoke. Um, and if you don't know, Ron is helping us through this transition as, as Gary and Patty are going off of staff. Uh, Ron's helping. He's going to be here uh, from time to time uh, preaching uh, as well, just being here on some Sundays, although he's helping out another church as well, and, and he's meeting with me. So grateful for uh, Dr. Ron Frost to come and share the word with us this morning. So let's invite Ron up. Well, it's a privilege to be here, and what... Um Greg didn't say, I should warn some of you who don't know me, I'm a teacher, not a preacher, so you'll just have to adapt to that reality. Uh, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you as I, I enjoy uh, the book of Acts so much. I always like to start with my own word of prayer, uh, so let me just ask for our time together here to be blessed. Lord, we, we trust you, we wait upon you, we need you, we look to you, and uh, we ask that your spirit would uh, tend to us and give us a responsive uh, set of hearts that we could uh, really enjoy you like we never have before. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're um, uh, continuing in this study of Acts, uh, we reach chapter uh, 4, and we'll be looking at that in a moment. But I want to just comment that uh, while I have not ever been to Ukraine, I have been to Slovakia. I've been to Poland, Poland many times. And uh, I'm looking, just arranging a trip to go to Poland here in uh, just about, a, to be there for Easter. And they are nervous about what's going on in the next door. Uh, it's the church that I'll be visiting has Ukrainian refugees already attending the church. I've been in a, with a group called the International Messengers, and they have missionaries working in Ukraine. And I spoke at a conference there just after Russia took over Crimea and uh, had a chance to have some deep conversations with some really wonderful, godly people. I've talked to, to people who are in a Bible college in Odessa. And uh, the Lord is at work in the Ukraine, and I can't help but think that... Uh, uh, the enemy uh, just doesn't like that a bit. So we do need to be praying for them. Think of the Christian community being able to share their hearts with those who are terrified and needy. Uh, and may the peace that passes understanding uh, be present among them. So this morning we're going to take, take a look at Acts uh, 4, 1 through 12. And I want to mention uh, that part of what I have to wrestle with is the confusion of groups. Uh, that, uh, you know, here in America, we, we, uh, we only have to deal with simple dichotomies. Republicans are Democrats, you know, and you kind of people clinch up or you know, just start to, you know, clinch their fists on one side or the other of, of the kind of divides that we experience there. What we're going to find here is that the Bible, you can't really understand it until you understand there are really different uh, groups in play which don't like each other. There are some serious conflicts going on here. So, for instance, we have the Roman rulers. They are occupiers. Okay? In 63 B.C., a guy named General Pompey came in because the Jews were fighting among themselves, and one of the groups said, can you help us? Yeah, well, I'm glad to help you. He came in and took over. So, basically, the Jews were then, from that point on, under the Roman leadership, rulership. And under that, the Jews uh, had their own structures approved by but supervised by the local governor, Pilate, during the time we're looking at. 
uh, was that govern government ruler who was not at all Jewish, not particularly sympathetic to the Jews. But the Jewish rulers then looked up to them to get approval for things like having meetings. They would be taxed and they would have this conversation. They were led by the Sanhedrin. And at the peak of the Sanhedrin are the priests or the high priestly group. There had been a guy named Annas who was the high priest. He got booted out of office. He was replaced by a guy named Caiaphas. But they still talked about Annas as the high priest because he had once been a high priest. He didn't die, so he's still considered a high priest in retirement. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was then for many years the high priest. And they're trying to handle things as they have yet another uh, problem going on. You've got the zealots who are out to overthrow the Romans just as much as we've got the fighting going on in the Ukraine, there was fighting going on in Israel. Uh, some of you may have watched, I've only watched a certain number of them, but that, uh, what's that uh, television series, the, what, the Chosen, that's right, you get a little sense of that. And they had, Jesus had in his own discipleship group, a guy named Simon who was called Simon the Zealot. It wasn't just that he was a zealous figure. He had apparently been converted out of the group called the Zealots. And the Zealots were out again to overthrow the Romans. And they eventually went into full and formal revolt. And the Romans came in with their army. And in 70 AD, if you know anything about the fortress of Matsada, that was the end of the revolt. The Jews lost and the Romans won. In those days, you don't take on the Romans. But all of this is boiling and bubbling as a, a, a dramatic context for the time of the New Testament church. In the meantime, you've got the Jesus Jews. So you've got another group, the Temple Jews. I mentioned them. They also had they, a party called the Sanhedrin who were devoted to supporting the temple worship. And so those would be part of working along with the... Uh, Oh, the high priest and his group, his family, the San, and they would be part of the Sanhedrin, but also you'd have the Bible-thumping Pharisees, who, uh, here's the difference between uh, the Sadducees who worked with the temple leaders, uh, the high priest and his gang. Uh, they had been followers of just the Pentateuch, not the rest of the Bible. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And uh, that's, that's an old one, but it's a good memory maker. Uh, and whereas the Pharisees did believe, and they didn't believe in angels, uh, and uh, whereas the Pharisees did indeed believe in angels, the resurrection, because they took all the rest of the Old Testament scriptures and held to them. So it was a debate over scriptures. So there was even among the temple Jews, I'll call them, divisions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with the Sadducees basically huddled around the, the high priest and his clan, his family. So that's a little bit of context. Then you've got now a new group, the Jesus Jews, uh, or the Spirit Jews, because it's the Spirit of Jesus who defines the inauguration of the book that we're looking at now, the book of Acts. So with that as context, let's plow into it and recognize that it's a time of huge turmoil and the temple worship in Jerusalem was facing a dooming future. It was not going to last. 
And that's upsetting because it had only really been, the temple had been built way back in the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, Haggai, and some of these other books. And they built, which was kind of a very modest replacement for the temple that Solomon had built. And along came Herod, who was really not too, he was Jewish, but more of a politician, very much more a politician than a religious Jew. But he said, I'm going to please everyone by rebuilding the temple. So in the process of some 40-some years, he rebuilds the temple and doubles the platform. In fact, you can go there today. I've had a chance to go there and watch it. You can see the dividing wall where Herod's extension is added to the temple um, platform. And believe me, he spent money on it. It was a melodramatic uh, construction project. And the temple was now bright and shiny uh, because Herod had invested so much time in getting this thing built. Then comes Jesus. And, um, well, it's all pretty interesting. So let's start out. I'm going to start out with uh, looking at Acts uh, 4, 1 through 4. We'll read that. And then we'll come back and start talking about some of the divisions and how the temple is doomed. The question is, how is it going to end? So, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple uh, and the Sadducees, here's some of the groups here, came upon them. So you've got the, uh, what we would call the Jesus Jews with Peter and uh, we left off with uh, Peter and uh, John doing the speaking after the day of Pentecost and uh, everything's pretty exciting as they're thrilled after the resurrection of Jesus with the new mission that they've been given by Jesus. So anyway, these uh, uh, temple authorities are greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Oh, by the way, who was just raised from the dead? Just not that long before. Jesus who they were going to get rid of to solve the problem of his creating Jesus Jews. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. So there's the problem that they need to address, but um, uh, they arrested them. They didn't like that uh, preaching, teaching, so they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening and they had to get home for supper. I'm sorry, I added that. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, I tell you, that is a preacher's dream. If I were to finish the sermon and the report came back in the Camus or the Columbian Camus, whatever, post, whatever it is, that 5,000 people were converted because of this sermon at Harvest Community Church, I'd be encouraged. Well, that's not going to happen. But what we can be sure happened is something melodramatic was going on. And what was it that was going on? The resurrection of Jesus. Remember, there had been the feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000 up in the Nazareth area. And it says in the Bible that many Jews from Jerusalem had gone up. And they were enjoying the food, the fish, and the the preaching, but did they respond? No, the answer was not at all, because on the day of Pentecost, we have about 120 people who are really true blue devoted believers, followers of Jesus. But after the resurrection is being preached, there's all of a sudden 5,000. Later on, we'll talk about another 3,000. People realize there's no body in that tomb, believe me. 
if the, if the temple Jews had that body available or if the Roman authorities had the body available, they would have dragged the carcass out and waved it on, put it back on a pole and said, there he is. Do you think he's raised from the dead? They, they had no body to work with, okay? So that's the principal feature here in this upheaval that these are unsettled days and part of being unsettled is someone could be raised from the dead? Come on. Well, guess what? That's the gospel. So as we see this, we have about 5,000 were saved in the day. Now let me talk about two of the groups. We've got the, the, the zealots, what I call the zealot Jews. Let me comment on them for a minute. They were seeking to drive out the Romans, as we mentioned. And in uh, John chapter 6, let's read that, um, where Jesus in his early ministry has just fed the 5,000 and uh, verse 14, 14 and 15 with the fishes and loaves. And it's certainly reminding the Jews of the 40, days, 40 years under Moses when he fed them bread every single day, manna. And they're going, whoa, we would love to have this arrangement again, food every day. And remember, in those days, people were hungry. That, that, there was not a lot of food to go around. And so uh, they were ready to have Jesus become as a Christ figure or perhaps as the one promised by Moses, a, another one who would come, a priest or prophet like Moses, who would then compete with and defeat the Roman rulers. That's what the zealots really wanted. And so they approached him, and they, when they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, the prophet like Moses, also mentioned last week in uh, Acts, uh, uh, or in, it was in Acts 2, this promise of the prophet like Moses. And um, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. So Jesus wasn't buying this arrangement of having zealots treat him as a political pawn to accomplish their own less than godly purposes. And uh, as we go, down, go forward with that, we find that there's other features about how this Jewish nationalism, the zealots movement, uh, was a big problem. As we see when Jesus is... Um, doing things like, oh, raising a person from the dead. Remember the story of Lazarus? Well, let's turn to that. After Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11, 48 to 53, we have uh, Jesus um, um, basically um, being confronted by the religious authorities. So now we've got the temple Jews. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> he raises people from the dead. Not a bad uh, sign that he should be treated as someone from God. And indeed, perhaps the promised Christ. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Oh, all of a sudden we discover the fixation isn't on the coming king, the Messiah, but it's on keeping our temple keeping our jobs, keeping our place, keeping our comfort, keeping our stability and our security. That's what we want. So we better kill him. And so they go on and talk about this. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, uh, he had been that for a few years, but uh, said to them, you know nothing at all. He got, got his very prophetic high priestly voice on. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. 
A little ironic there. Not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the people, the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So do you see the tension there? Here's the, the Jewish view of things uh, from uh, uh, John's point of view as he's writing his gospel. He says, you know what Caiaphas accidentally and ironically said was true. Jesus did die for the nation. But we also recognize that from the, let me protect my status as the high priest, in light of the Romans, very concerned about the zealots who are, wanting to throw them out of the country and are worried that we, the Jewish leadership, will go and fight and be, go over and, and be part of the nationalist movement. So what we want to do is go to the Romans and convince them that we're actually loyal to Rome even though we hate the Romans. They did. Okay. So that's the, you start to see the moving pieces here. So how do we kill Jesus? Now Jesus is interesting too in that he helps set this whole thing up in... Uh, in, uh, I won't, we don't have it on the overhead, but in John chapter 2, we have uh, Jesus uh, coming in and cleansing the temple early in his ministry. And after he does that, they said, who gave you the authority to do that? I mean, this is, you know, the temple. You, you don't have the right to come into the precincts of the temple and start to do your, your, your uh, reforming efforts. And Jesus said, look it, this temple is going to be torn down in three days. It'll be raised again. And they said, what are you saying? It's taken Herod 40, what is it, 42 years to build this thing. So this had all started, the project of the reconstruction of the temple, probably around 20 years before Christ was born. So this was a long project. They were proud of it, all the money, the economy, uh, all of that was huddled around the growth of the temple. And Jesus came and said, no, in three days I'll raise it up. And of course, later on, John says, well, that was because Jesus was talking about the temple that is himself. So now we start to discover there really is a different point of view over the physical temple and the spiritual reality that Jesus was indeed the true temple of God. So we go on with that kind of a, 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 kind of a contest of who is Jesus, what is he about. We find uh, Jesus um, in uh, John chapter 18 um, where he's now uh, at the end of his uh, time on earth. He's uh, going to face his crucifixion in, within a few hours. And so Pilate has received Jesus from Caiaphas. Annas drilled him. Caiaphas then grilled him. They sent him to Herod. He grills him. Then he comes back, and they ship him off to Pilate. And the reason, again, is the Romans have the right to capital punishment, not the Jews. So they alone have life and death issues, and that means there has to be an agreement by Pilate and the Roman government to have Jesus put to death. And Pilate doesn't want to do that, but he recognizes there's the different parties, the zealots, the Jesus Jews, and it's a turmoil, and he goes, ooh, how do we manage this? And he also knows that if Caesar back home hears that someone is proclaimed as a king of the Jews, and he doesn't kill that person, that's probably going to be a career-ending move on Pilate's part. There's a good book on this if you ever get a chance to read Pontius Pilate by Paul Meyer. It's a book that came out about 40 years ago, but it's outstanding historical 
uh, a historical novel, but very informative, and it tells the whole story here. So it's a curious time because uh, remember that Jesus is shipped in, and all of the people are shouting. They, they have to, because it's the Passover, they can't go into Pilate's palace area, but just outside there's an entrance, kind of a guarded entry area, and they've got throngs of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. While just a week earlier, you had uh, the uh, great pathway down from the Mount of Olives uh, downhill. And with that, people were throwing down cloaks and, and uh, leaves and trees and branches. And we call it the triumphal entry just a week before. So is this a fickle turning of the Jews from one to the other? Or was it, in fact, you've got one group of people on one side of the city, thus the uh, Mount of Olives is on the eastern side of Jerusalem, and the western side is where Pilate's uh, palace and uh, where this hearing was taking place. And no doubt, early in the morning, after Jesus was tried, all of the temple figures and the people employed in the temple were told, you get there early in the morning while everyone else is waking up and having breakfast on the other side of town. They're down there saying, crucify him, crucify him. And it's a split within the community that's going on there. And the trick is to get Jesus crucified as quickly as possible before the crowds notice and start to react against it. So with that kind of a context, we find... Uh, Pilate nervous, uh, so Pilate entered in, into his headquarters again, where Jesus had been located after he'd been out talking to the Jewish crowds outside the temple group, and called Jesus and said to him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" This is the you know it's the key question. Jesus answered him, "Did you say this on your own accord, or did others say to you, this uh, to you about me?" And Pilate said, "Am I a Jew?" Now notice the splits, the divisions. He says, I'm no Jew. I'm here as a Roman authority over the Jews. Now, Jesus, you should know better. Why are you asking me that silly question? Did someone tell you? And um, Jesus basically has his reasons. And Jesus answered, uh, or I will continue with Pilate's answer, your own nation and your chief priests have de delivered you over to me. What have you done? How come you, a Jew, a charismatic Jew, a potential leader... How come you're so docile? How come you haven't been fighting back? Who are you? I don't get who you are. And I would like to know before I kill you. Jesus answered, my kingdom. Here's a big point. Get this one. My kingdom is not of this world. Ooh. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, he is a Jew, being delivered over to the Jews. You see, the divisions among the Jews would be if Jesus as the Christ was going to fight against Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees and high priests, he would have already marshaled his troops. Remember, Peter tried to strike the Malchus, the high priest's servant, uh, split his head and he missed and only got an ear. Uh, they were ready to fight, and Jesus said, stop it. This is not what we're going to do. This is not our plan. This is not my purpose. And so we start to see the internal divisions and the rampaging, awkward realities of the day. 
So we find that there's even more to this kind of issue of divisions. Remember back in uh, the time of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the leaders under the Romans. We had this group of Jews who included the high priest, would have been led by the high priests. But they're the Sanhedrin. And this would have been about 70 men whose job it was, both Pharisees and Essenes and Sadducees, the whole set of groups, all meeting together as a council to make decisions in, on behalf of the Jewish religious concerns. And uh, basically, they would help guide the, the Romans as the Romans tried to keep the Jewish population under control. So Nicodemus came, apparently, I think, with a can-we-work-together proposal. You must be from God, he said back in John chapter 3, because no one could do the things you're doing, the signs, the miracles, unless he's from God. And Jesus says, sorry, Nick, can't work with you. You haven't been born again. You don't have the Spirit of God in you. So that's a dividing feature between a Jesus Jew and a temple Jew that you can be religious but not have the life of God in you, which is life that comes by the Spirit of God who comes and awakens a life that is dead. Go back to Genesis 3. You will die, you will not die. Nick, you're on the wrong side of that debate. You think you're alive when you're dead. And when Adam and Eve ate, they died on the day that they ate of that forbidden fruit. And so from that point on, humanity is dead, though alive, alive in the flesh, but dead spiritually. And Jesus says, you're still on the wrong side of that equation. And so we also have other realities of uh, Jesus uh, with the woman at the well in John 4. What does he say to her? She's kind of an outsider, but Jesus starts to make the movement beyond just sheer pure Judaism and reaches out to this lady in Samaria. And you can read about the Samaritans. They're sort of a half-breed Jewish, non-Jewish group. And they believe things of Judaism, but not quite as prescribed by the Jewish teaching and the laws. And so Jesus says to her, would you like living water? And she goes, yeah, are you a plumber? She's a little confused. And she's saying, but you don't have any tools. How are you going to plumb Living water would have been streaming water, and it's so good to have the illustration of how much we appreciate water today as I speak of this. I had no idea. But living water would have just been ch channeled water, one running water, not stale in a, in a pond water, okay? So that's what she's saying. Well, uh, yeah, I'd love that plumbing. And he says, hey, how about your lifestyle? <gasps> Ooh, got a problem here. Well, of course, Jesus says, oh, I know all about you. Five husbands. The one you're with now is not your husband. And she goes, oh, he told me everything I ever did. Well, so Jesus is offering her life, and he calls it living water. And by the time we get to uh, later on in chapter Seven, we find out more about this living water that Jesus is offering. On the last day of the feast, John 7, 37 39, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that speaks still, still to us today. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And what is the glory of Jesus? That he died on the cross, was buried, and through his death, he broke the power of death and came back to life and offered multiplied life to all who believe in him. Those are the Jesus Jews. 
Those are the Jews who have the Spirit of God. And so uh, that's the glorification of Jesus comes as he dies and then is raised again, and he is glorified by his ascension. And so uh, we will finish up the rest of our text that we're working on today. Let's turn to Acts 4, 5 through 12, and we'll see how this upheaval of the resurrection makes a difference. And the next day, their rulers and uh, elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, who were all of the high priestly family. So there's that core cluster of the high priests. And when they had set them in their midst, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Out of all the centers of authority and power and rambunctiousness, turmoil, which group are you assigning yourself to be a part of? Where are you getting? 5,000 people followed you because of your sermons in the last couple of days, and we're nervous. What are you proclaiming? Who are you? And we killed Jesus, and you're saying that he was raised from the dead, and the word is out that a lot of people are saying he was raised from the dead, and I'm sure they went and checked the tomb, and we can't find his body. That's between the lines. And we don't know what to do with you. So instead of having a hard fist approach, they went and said, who are you? Tell us about yourselves. What are you proclaiming? What are you about? And so we go on. And uh, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Who's the key in all of this? Let me tell you something. One thing I've discovered, I've been trained as a theologian. I've done theology reading, historical theology. You know the weakness of the evangelical church right now is that we've got two cul-de-sacs. We've got the one group uh, of uh, trained theologically informed people who treat the Holy Spirit like a battery pack with no personality. He's the empowering presence, and they don't want him to be more than that. You'll read books by these people. They will never do any referencing of the Holy Spirit. And then you got the high drama folks. The, whoa, have we got the Spirit? But it's almost like it's, the Spirit is fentanyl. It's like it's an opioid. It's a, whoa, you can come and have a real joyous time. But the Holy Spirit, you go to... Go to John 15. It says the Spirit points to the Son, and the Son points to the Father. The Spirit's not about himself. He's not a buzz producer, but he changes the life. When a life is dead and the Spirit comes in and gives life, we move from death to life, and that changes everything. And that's a Jesus Jew. The Spirit is the key figure. Get the two cul-de-sacs out of the way, and you start to have the Spirit is at the center of real transformation and growth. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. A lot of people in the church today don't have the Holy Spirit because there's no fruit. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the meekness. If that's in you, great. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're a grumbling, grumpy, complaining, feisty, you may not have the Spirit of God, and it's time to have a conversation. But that's a sidebar. I'm preaching now. I wanted to be a teacher today. But as we go ahead with this whole idea of these, of these two groups, we have what then emerges in the rest of this passage here. Um, and let me finish it up here. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, I got stalled on that, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, remember the last sermon was about the healing of the man that had been born lame, 
and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, ooh, you're dealing with God here. This is his son. You've messed with the Messiah. Notice that it's Jesus Christ. That is the term Messiah, the Christos. By him, this man is standing before you well. In other words, we didn't do this on our own. This was, you want to know the name we're dealing with? Jesus, that's the name. And that's the name for God. And uh, there is no, there is, and there's salvation by no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given, oh, I, I skipped over the key verse here, <laughs> whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. That's the key verse. We even had it read to us earlier from Psalm 118. Uh, this has been rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no other no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by, um, among men by which we must be saved. Now, to catch that, the builders are supposedly the temple leaders and also the one they're working with, the local, very ungodly Herod the Great. So the building of this, they're pointing this whole structural thing, you're the builders, but guess what? The true cornerstone has not been received. In fact, you crucified him, and that's not a good report. So what are they talking about? And here we start to go back into some additional and crucial information that uh, they should have had at hand. And we'll go back to Isaiah 28, 16 and 17. And we discover that they are touching on what it is to be a Jesus Jew. That is to recognize that it's more than the local physical temple. And we make a mistake if we think the church buildings are what the church is. God forbid Buildings are buildings. They are not the basis of spirituality. And get that one clarified. And so Isaiah 28, verses 16 to 17, this is the promise of the coming Messiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion. That's, by the way, the way Mount Zion is also a name for Jerusalem. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a firm, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. In other words, he's not talking about a physical temple. He's talking about a spiritual temple, which is not going to have corrupt pr priests faulty religious leaders, priests that are ready to crucify Jesus, but godly people and the plumb line of justice and righteousness will be in play with this one who is the true cornerstone, who is going to be rejected by the actual local builders in his day. So we go on then on to Psalm 118 that was read earlier. Let me just read part of it, 22 and 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is a prophetic psalm of the Messiah and is a celebration of Jesus arriving as the cornerstone of the spiritual temple. 
that is going to be built. Remember, I'm the, this temple will be torn down and three days raised up again. He was not talking about the 42-year project of, of Herod. He's talking about the living reality of his being the temple of God, his being God in the flesh. And so with that in mind, uh, we go forward, we'll leap ahead into a day when Jews are in, actually include the Gentiles. That's coming up later on in Acts, but I'm going to sneak ahead here by going to Ephesians. And listen to this. For through him, Jesus, we both have our access in one, I mentioned the role of the Holy Spirit, in one spirit. The Spirit is the key to life with God. We have to be born again. We have to be born of the Spirit. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now he's talking to people living in Turkey, and they're mostly not Jews. And they would be considered strangers and aliens if they went to Jerusalem, and they would find that there's a wall that keeps anyone from going beyond it to where the temple compound is really located. They would have been considered strangers and aliens, not allowed. He said, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus, Christ Jesus himself being the, here it is, cornerstone, this new construct, this new reality, on, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So what is it to be a Jesus Jew? It's to have the Spirit in us. And it doesn't matter whether we're Jews or Gentiles. We are one because we're building blocks. So what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified? Do you remember that? The Holy of Holies, the place where God would dwell. They had to kill animals, bring in blood to sprinkle it because they were so unholy. Well, what, whose blood was shed as the ultimate sacrifice? The blood of Jesus on the cross. And what happened immediately? The temple veil was torn and God says, I'm coming out of this dusty stifling little room, and I'm going to go out into the world, and I'm going to dwell in my new temple. So what did we have in the, the inauguration of the tabernacle, the fiery presence of the glory of God, the Shekinah coming down and filling, and the priests running for cover. In fact, uh, two of the sons of Aaron didn't take God seriously, Nadab and Abihu, and they got toasted. Beware of the Spirit of God. If you're on the wrong side, folks, beware. And then on the day that they built the temple, Solomon built the temple. Guess what happened? The prayer of dedication, and immediately the fiery presence of God came in, filled the temple, and everyone started running for cover because it was like burning fire filled the whole place. And they went, whoa, God is here. What happened, by the way? This is a, this is a frosty intake, so you didn't hear it preached, I'm sure. But on the day of chapter 2 of Pentecost, that's the inauguration of the new temple. And guess what? There's a fiery presence once again. That's why the tongues of fire were there, because God says, I'm coming to live here. Now, it was a one-time event in each case, and guess what? For those of us who have the Spirit of God, in God's eyes, we've got the fiery presence saying, yep, I, that one belongs to me. And that's the glory of God in the church today. We are collectively the new temple for those of us who have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So there's the reality, the cornerstone promise of salvation, the new insight that has been given, that Jesus Christ is living in a church called the body 
of believers, not in the dead temple. And in 70 AD, the temple is torn down and it hasn't been rebuilt till today, okay? And the question of where is God going to give salvation, it's not by going to the temple with your sacrifices, it's coming through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, falling on our knees and saying, you're my Lord, I trust you, I love you, fill me with your spirit, let me have life. So what do we see here? Either dead religion or sharing life with Christ. It's a pretty good sermon. I mean, I didn't mind preaching this one. The punchline is pretty simple. Um, we've got a God who loves us. And he says, I so love the world that I'm going to send my son. He's going to die, but through him we can have eternal life. Whoever believes in him um, gets eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful. We're so thankful for what your son did. We're so thankful that you sent the Spirit to fill us, to enlarge us, to equip us, to walk by faith, and that here's where salvation is found, not in buildings, but in the community called the body of Christ. We pray that your presence among us here at Harvest would be rich and deep, and it would spread widely and dramatically. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.